Welcome to the 19th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system, and cyber weapon. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be the co-host for this series, along with my colleague, Amim Lutfi. We're very thrilled to have with us today, Professor Deborah Avant, who is a Sai Chiao Kang Chair for the International Security and Diplomacy at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Her research has focused on civil-military relations and the role of non-state actors in controlling violence and generating governance. She's the author, editor of Civil Action and Dynamics of Violence and Conflict, the New Power Global, the New Power Politics Networks and Transnational Security Governance, uh, and of course the Market Force Force, which is one of for us who are in this field, is one of the entry entry point into this entire field of market and of, of force and economics. Um, so and and she was also the inaugural director of the Xiao Qing. Xiaokang Center for International Security and Diplomacy. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Professor Avant. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Deborah, uh, I just want to repeat what Amim just said. We are extremely delighted to have you with us today as your work is a pillar in the private military security academic work. Uh, I will go straight to the first question. As could you describe to our audience why you started to research non-state actor role and how the privatization of the state monopoly of violence evolved from the two conflicts in Iraq and until now, especially now that we are looking at how Kabul fall extremely quickly. Thank you, Deborah. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, it, it, uh, there was a lot of kind of um, luck and uh, coincidence, I guess, in, in my decision. I, um, I actually began my work looking at counterinsurgency, um, which, um, you know, I looked at uh, the U.S. experience in Vietnam, the British experience in the Boer War in Malaya, and really had kind of an argument about um, how democracies kind of respond um, to insurgent forces. Um, when I did my work, um, my, my dissertation committee actually um, said, John Ruggie, who was on it, said, it's too bad that um, you have such an interesting topic and nobody will ever read this because it was during the Cold War and everyone was focused on the US-Soviet conflict. Um, of course, I finished my dissertation in 1991 and by then the Cold War was ending um, and it turned out a lot of people were interested. Um, and I was you know, focusing a lot on the various peace missions that were occurring um, all over the Balkans and Africa. And um, as I went to conferences on these peace missions, I began to notice that there were people there from Brown and Root um, and from MPRI and these people were essentially attending these conferences, um, trying to figure out what was going on in these conflicts, but they were also participating um, as private actors um, doing logistics support in the case of Brown and Root. And then MPRI, of course, um, did a variety of training um, missions in the Balkans um, and in Africa, actually. Um, and so I just was curious about this. Um, I had. Um, 
as kind of a sideline from my dissertation project, I had written about um, practices of war and how they change, um, and and was just finishing an article on how mercenary armies went away. And so it was kind of intriguing to think about the possibility of them coming back. Um, and so I'd say I started keeping a file in, say, 1997. Um, and um, by the time I got tenure, I was ready for something really big and meaty and interesting. And I thought I would just do work on this new um, phenomenon. Um, and so I traveled, um, actually, quite a lot um, in 1999, 2000, um, throughout the Balkans and Africa, UK, um, visiting governments that, that exported these services, um, looking at um, the companies that provided them, um, looking at host governments, um, and then also looking at um, the increasing role of NGOs and um, oil companies, other extractive companies in sort of managing these forces. And that, that essentially became my book. But to get to the second part of your question, um, you know, when I was first doing my research, um, all of the cases that I selected were actually cases of training. Um, and that was kind of the, the there, there was actually, a, there was a lot of logistics support as well, but training was really the mission that seemed to be the most, um, have the most potential for abuse and concern um, because uh, really these private companies were placing US forces, European forces, British forces um, in, in their training missions. Um, by the time um, I had a draft of my book ready, the war in Iraq um, had already begun. Uh, the war in Afghanistan was already a year or so um, over old and I, um, I realized I needed to uh, to incorporate them um, because it wasn't just training and logistics, um, but the growth of um, personal security, site security, uh, mobile security, and all of these things had been there in the Balkans and um, in um, wars in uh, Africa. But these wars, these kind of peace missions, tended to be much more permissive environments. And so these kinds of roles were not as um, large and they just didn't get pulled into so many difficult circumstances. Um, and so, um, so I, I think that when we look at the history of um, Iraq and Afghanistan, we will look at both the growth of these forces, the growth of this particular type of force um, and the kinds of, of problems that it um, generated. And then um, because the demand grew so quickly, you also saw a transnationalization of the industry. So um, in the 1990s, it was still small networks of um, military operatives that had worked together in various missions. Um, and um, after the demand exploded, particularly um, in, in the middle of the um, 2000s, there was um, a growth of these kind of middleman firms that would be essentially matchmakers, pull in um, forces from all over the world um, and pair them with, um, with industry leaders in order to sort of meet contract demands. And so you saw a lot more um, what they called third country nationals um, participating in the conflicts. Um, that was that was fairly new um, to that period of time. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Wan. 
So we've been running this podcast for about a year, year and a half or so, and there's been a running debate across um, these, these, uh, these uh, episodes. And one of those key debates is how do you label these actors? Or how do you categorize them? So we had uh, Sean McFate on one of our first shows, and he his argument was that that by using these sort of separate label, there's a way that a lot of these actors get away with regulation. So you know, so you call yourself a contractor instead of instead of you know like a, a, a private soldier, and there's certain regulations that you can get away with. So he suggested that it's better to study this phenomena under sort of a collective label, be it even mercenary. But on the other side, we had people from ICOCA and ISOA, and they suggested that, that, that this would essentially lead to uh, a lot of problems, especially with policy and regulation, where you need that kind of specificity, where you need that kind of detailed uh, labeling of different actors and what they do. So I'm wondering where do you stand on this? And I ask this because, I mean, you're someone who sort of, you know, uh, straddled both the the world of policy and the world of academia. Um, so is there some tension within where the demands of academia are something else, the, the demands of policy are something else, but where do you stand on this issue of like labeling and categorizing this field more broadly? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, academics, of course, love to label things and, um, and put them in boxes. Um, I think that, um, you know, my position early on um, was that we ought to really be focusing on the service that's provided. So there was a lot of debate over whether companies were private military companies or private security companies or mercenary groups. Um, and I um, was much more comfortable looking at what they were doing um, and kind of labeling that. Um, and I think that that is, is still a pretty useful tool. And in fact, one of the things that I think would be really useful for regulation is so much of it has grown around these really particular site security, mobile security, um, personal security detail um, services. Um, and we have not developed the same kinds of codes of conduct for, say, trainers or logistics support or um, other operational support missions. And so I think that you could, um, you might even break down operational support missions um, in different categories, but I think that focusing on what they do is critically important. And that's partly because these companies um, can morph very quickly, like any other service industry. They essentially match talent with a job, a need for a contract. And so as the needs change, they don't have these massive numbers of full-time employees that keep them in one sort of service category. They can move. And I think that that's gonna be actually um, an important thing to pay attention to now as um, the US has pulled out of Afghanistan as a very minor um, role in Iraq. You know, what, you know, where, where is the demand gonna come from? Um, and what is will it be for? And what will these companies kind of morph into? So I think the, the urge to call them private security companies or private military companies um, is, um, is labeling a company um, rather than the kinds of services that they provide. Um, and I understand the need for that at some level, but I think actually focusing on more on the services is, is more productive. 
Um, and then now we have this whole new category of these sort of quasi-state, quasi-mercenary groups, the Wagner group, different um, groups um, uh, associated with the Belt and Road Initiative and others that are um, really in between. And um, I think trying to figure out what it is about them that makes us nervous um, is, is probably more important than trying to figure out what to call them. Um, and I, I do agree with um, the folks at ICOCA um, that being able to distinguish between legitimate services and illegitimate services is a key part of this debate. And so I still think the service angle does more for us than the you know categorizing the groups per se. No, I can totally agree with uh, the distinction uh, looking at the service, especially now that I do believe that uh, in the coming decades we are going to witness uh, a trend, as you just correctly mentioned, to quasi-private military company and drawing the line uh, where the state end and the private start, uh, in my personal opinion, is going to be uh, the real challenge not only right. when we are looking at Wagner Group, but when we are looking uh, at uh, the expression of private security in the People's Republic of China. As you mentioned before, when you launched your first research, uh, they were dubbed uh, on a public uh, that is going to read your book. Uh, when I worked on my first book, China Private Army, uh, there was not only a doubt if there was an audience, but they were doubting if there was a, an existence of Chinese private security firm and uh, I prove it wrong. But since that, uh, uh, all the focus in these days, uh, it's uh, on Taliban uh, lightning speed retake of Kabul. And uh, there is really an endless talk about Afghanistan. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the central discussion in your research has been the transnational network uh, and this sort of middleman uh, that uh, started to grow uh, around uh, the, the business of private military and private security. Uh, and one of the issues that we have been looking with our previous speaker, like uh, Dr. Joshua Reno or uh, Noah Coburn, was uh, war material and labor left behind. And it's quite important topic, especially now that we are talking about uh, Afghanistan. Uh, the large number of third country national uh, that are still there. I know that ISOA is still bent on in trying to evacuate them as we speak from, uh, from Kabul. But my question is, uh, what do you see as the future of contract workers and technology? that have been made redundant with the end of U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, and especially where we'll both ultimately end up? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one of the things, you know, so um, there were third country nationals in Afghanistan, but many fewer than in Iraq. Um, in Iraq, the third country nationals played a much larger role. Um, in Afghanistan, a lot of the contract workers were actually Afghanis. And so sort of thinking about not only third country national future, but the Afghani future, I think is really important. Um, and, you know, certainly from an ethical standpoint, from a um, the standpoint of sort of just what kind of civil military relations you have when you're talking about the relationship between, um, you know, a, a, a contract government and a contracted force, I think is, is a really important thing to, to pay attention to. There actually has been some good work done recently. Um, a gentleman by the name of Adam Moore, um, who's at UCLA, 
um, I think is a geographer um, or sociologist, um, but he has this great book called The Empire's Labor, um, where he interviews um, workers from the Philippines and the Balkans mostly, um, and kind of traces their experiences um, working in different parts of the world. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it's not a pretty sight in many cases, um, but um, he really draws out, I think, all of the different people that bear responsibility for their concerns, including sometimes the worker themselves. And so I think there's just so much more work to be done, I guess, in this area. Um, I was just talking to a reporter earlier this week who um, told me um, about a company, uh, it was, it, it's a, a, family, a family she knows has friends in uh, Afghanistan um, who worked for the US um, earlier in the war. They worked um, for a security company between 2005 and 2007. And they're trying to get a visa to get out of the country. Um, but in trying to do that, they actually had difficulty when they contacted the company of even finding records of their employment, um, which was not at all uncommon. The industry grew so rapidly in those early years that the companies really had no sense of what they were doing. They didn't sometimes even have um, ways of getting um, people who, contractors who had died in the conflict home. Um, they didn't, there were many, many kinds of regulations that were sort of not in place at the company level. And in this case, they didn't even have records of who had been employed. Um, and so it's very, very difficult for this person to get um, a visa to get out. And this is an Afghan national. Um, and so uh, over the course of time, the US government actually instituted a number of um, uh, requirements for companies, um, and they have gotten sort of better at handling these sorts of things. But I'll really hand it to ICOCA for paying attention to labor issues. Um, and in fact, I chaired a panel a couple of years ago, our last in-person <laughs> um, ICOCA General Assembly um, had a panel on trafficking issues. Um, and it was very well attended. Lots of industry leaders were very concerned about this issue um, and, and, and willing to think about um, what to do about it. But that's only um, a small part of the problem. Um, what, you know, the kinds of psychological services that people who have um, experienced trauma in these wars um, via contract, not via um, military service is unclear. How they get reintegrated in society, what kind of, um, financial um, support they have, um, you know, what happens to them if they're in um, Afghanistan, all of those questions um, are really unanswered. Thank you. We actually had, um, it's funny that you bring up Dr. Adam Moore because we had him on two, uh, two episodes ago, we had him on our show talking about empire's labor and it was a fascinating read on into Sort of the, the the you know beyond the security world of you know the workers and so on and and the machinery that's needed to pull this all together, and one of the issues you know that the, it came up with that that if most of the work that private contractors are doing is actually not even security work, it's all sorts of labor, all sorts of labor. But still, there is this perception that 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 this entire category of people. Um, suffer from some kind of mislabeling, some kind of like popular uh, perception um, against them. 
and that kind of you know uh, like notoriety often uh, hinders their reintegration into different workforces as well. Um, you know, of course, you know, part of this blame goes on to the private contractors themselves. Um, so, but in your opinion, what, what, what are some of the measures that can perhaps be introduced to increase transparency into these processes, into the nature of the work that they're doing, into the nature of contracting? Um, and when, what would be the best approaches to do that? Well, I mean, one of the things is that this is a constantly changing um, uh, social site. Um, and so I, I, I do think that, you know, that's one of the difficulties that people have had with these regulatory solutions, especially kind of treaties or hard law, you know, it's just, it can't really keep up with, with the changes in it. Um, I actually am a big fan of the, um, Montreux process, the International Code of Conduct, the standards, partly because they are built to be evolving. Um, and um, I think there's, there's a lot more attention that political scientists and others could pay to sort of how we think about um, these norms, these best practices, um, how, we, how we hold people accountable with them, um, all of those kinds of things. Um, but I still think that that kind of tool is probably the best that we can get um, in a situation where things are changing very quickly. One of the things that's really interesting is that the way this has functioned generally is to take norms we already agree on, um, international humanitarian law, international human rights law, and basically translate it into the situation of um, private security contractors, private military contractors. And um, that has been a, a, a useful way um, of, of basically incorporating a lot of different forces, including rebel forces and terrorists, you know, some political philosophers that actually argue that it's, you know, those two have a code of ethics and it's tied to that same kind of logic that, um, that, that grows out of international humanitarian law and human rights obligations. Um, so I would expect that those kinds of things would be, would continue to be um, useful tools, but, you know, how they're, they will evolve um, is hard to um, um, predict. Uh, I, actually, I'll mention another book that's just coming out uh, by Simon Pratt, um, which looks at the way that different norms have changed during the war on terror. Um, and he looks at private military and security companies as one of those, but also issues of targeted killing. Um, how do you interpret targeted killing in a way that's consistent with international humanitarian law? US has tried to do that, you know? Um, and so sort of thinking about kind of how normative configurations change, I think will be a really important part of kind of understanding whether we like or don't like the kinds of, of norms that evolve around this industry. But I do think this is a, this in combination with laws that use these normative frameworks, um, you know, in the US, for instance, the Department of Defense requires that contractors be um, uh, standards compliant in order to compete for security contracts. Um, so there's a, a bit an enforcement angle that's coming from the government but sort of how the code works is much more alive because it's a code of conduct and not sort of written into, um, into law. 
No, definitely, as you mentioned, norms uh, on targeted killing are on dire need, but if I want to link it with our discussion of private military, I foresee that in a future, unfortunately, not too long, we are going to witness private military company that are managing armored drone and the kind of sort of paper use capability in use of armored drone. And uh, talking about private military, there is this constant mention that the United States have opened the Pandora box of uh, military contracting and privatization. But uh, as we just mentioned, we already witnessed numerous other states that are experimenting with military contracting. Uh, just recently, on July 28, uh, when State Councilor and the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Wang Yi from China, met in Tianjin, the Taliban envoys, he also mentioned that the Chinese private security firm uh, are an important tool in protecting the Belt and Road infrastructure. And additionally, we have already witnessed the quasi uh, group such as the Wagner Group uh, working uh, the, in gray area for Mother Russia from Crimea, Syria, and uh, even uh, African continent. When we are talking about quasi private military com companies, do you see any notable difference in how this country, let's say, for example, Russia and China, are using or going to use uh, uh, private security and private military differently from the U.S. or are just using and copying the U.S. playbook? Yeah, so I, I think one of the um, one of the interesting features of, of the governance of this industry is it started looking at state obligations um, with respect to these companies. Um, and notably, the, the Chinese government is a party to the Montreux document um, and the Russian government is not. Um, and I think that um, one of the big features um, that groups like Wagner um, accord to the Russian government is the ability for the government to really operate outside of international humanitarian law that it is, you know, in a sense, signed on to. Um, and so I think that in some instances, what these companies really do is allow governments to misbehave. Um, in other instances, they are themselves not held to account and, and potentially misbehave themselves. Um, but I think the big difference, um, particularly with Russia, is the, the degree to which um, these, these companies are, first of all, not even admitted to be there, <laughs> are officially still illegal, um, but are used frequently. And that gives um, Putin and his allies quite a lot of latitude to really make sure that these companies are pursuing his interests or the interests of a small group rather than any sort of collective concern. Um, and so that's, um, I, I think that's really the big, the big issue that we have. I, you know, I agree that the U.S. government um, was an important player in um, kind of unleashing or opening this Pandora's box. But I think the box was really bound to open um, because there, there, there really has been a situation for a while where the kinds of concerns that people have that they want to use force to for are not tightly tied to national interests. And this kind of global interconnectedness has really created, you know, worries that 
you know, Exxon has or Shell has or Save the Children has, World Wildlife Fund has, um, as well as, you know, consortia of different governments. And if you sort of look at the way that these companies have been used, they've often been used in these kind of unexpected things that pop up, you know, even in the Russian case, you know, a lot of their um, work has been protecting um, extractive industries. Um, and so I, I think that we really need to pay attention to these kind of deeper structural economic issues that have sort of laid the groundwork um, for this. And I think, you know, ultimately, I would liken this much more um, to the condidieri and the um, military enterprisers um, that were, uh, uh, you know, rampant in the sort of late Middle Ages, early modern period. Um, I think we are going through another transformation um, where there are increasing connections globally. Um, and, you know, the kinds of big national wars um, are just much less frequent. Um, and the kinds of, of conflict that you get is, um, is changing. And I think that these kinds of um, uh, companies, these kinds of services contracting is um, it tends to be sort of a flexible tool for dealing with these new sorts of missions. Um, and so I think it will continue to evolve. And part of how it will evolve depends on how people think about using force and, um, and the degree to which they focus on more collective concerns or they focus on sort of gaining advantage. Um, and I would put the Russian um, government right now in the latter category. Um, and I think a lot of the mantra process was an attempt to ensure that governments, if they were gonna use um, these companies or, or allow them to export from their territory, that they would keep them focused on, um, on things that could be legitimized by sort of some, some sort of collective claim. Um, thank you. I mean, that's a very interesting idea that, that, that what we see or private security or private military is perhaps better thought of as a system or for deeper change that is happening socially where national interests are not really aligned with the, the, the social, the, the security goals do not necessarily align with national interests. Um, and you know, this has been an issue of debate now with Afghanistan and sort of, I wanna bring you back to Afghanistan since that is you know, in the news right now and everyone wants to hear more about that. Um, so, the 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 the, bu the the bucket for like you know blame making for blame where does the blame lie has been going around um, in Afghanistan and sort of you know people asking you know what was it for who was it for and who do we get to blame um, in that discussion where does uh, where does the 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 fact that they decide that the U.S. decided to privatize their war to such a great degree in both Afghanistan and Iraq perhaps Iraq more so. This fact, where does this fact, uh, what does, how much of the blame of what happened in these places goes to the fact that decided to prioritize? I mean, I'm here thinking about, uh, for example, with Afghanistan, you know, the, that, that the, the Afghan National Army sort of, you know, packing up very quickly. One of the, the arguments that I'm reading is that had that they, that a lot of the missions that they had earlier conducted were in collaboration with private contractors. And a lot of the skill transfers that normally happen in such, uh, in such situations did not happen because instead of transferring some of those skills to uh, local uh, army and local forces, 
there were private contractors who did those jobs and hence the the army was not doing so i mean but but i mean this is an example but more broadly where does the you know how much of the blame of what went wrong perhaps lies on uh, on on the on the decision to privatize yeah so i think that um i would um I, I think the Afghan army not fighting had much more to do with the fact that the government collapsed than it had to do with any particular skill concern. Um, so, so I think that people suggesting that they were sort of unskilled and laid down their arms because of that um, are, 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 are overplaying that. Um, uh, I, I do, though, you know, the US government never decided to privatize the war in Afghanistan. Basically, the war didn't go exactly the way they hoped. And the industry provided an escape valve for bad policy, essentially. Um, in that escape valve, I think there were a lot of ways in which money um, went to um, contractors um, and were, so money went to contractors instead of the Afghan government, for instance. But secondly, the way it flowed, it opened many more possibilities for corruption um, because basically contractors are always performing a particular job for a sort of, uh, you know, a very particular client. And um, they're not necessarily attentive to the overall goal um, of the conflict. And I think um, we saw this in very concrete ways in Iraq, but I think we saw it similarly in Afghanistan when you have contractors paying off um, local strongmen, potentially with ties to the Taliban in order to you know, generate safe passage um, in, in building you know, a very important road. Um, this was one of the sort of big corruption um, issues um, in Afghanistan. I think that there's, you know, quite a lot of evidence um, that money flowing through contractors ended up generating more corruption and um, more pockets of power in Afghanistan that made it hard for the central government to um, uh, gain legitimacy. That wasn't the only thing that made it hard. I mean, there's so many problems with Afghanistan that you know it's 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 hard to know where to start. But um, but I think that that um, the, the the way the money flowed to contractors and the way that they're sort of dicing up this this very complicated job of counterinsurgency that requires a very close connection between um, you know the use of force. Uh, political incentives and and you know practical benefits for the population that just can't happen when you're dicing everything up and everybody is sort of um, you know uh, pursuing their own you know client contract as opposed to keeping their eye on on the big project. Um, so I mean counterinsurgency is hard no matter what. Um, it, well, it's particularly hard in a place like Afghanistan. Um, and yet, um, I think that the sort of the degree to which different services were contracted out made it even harder. So I don't, I wouldn't blame the fall of Afghanistan on contractors, but I think um, the use of contractors in Afghanistan did not help um, to generate a more successful counterinsurgency. You know, I should actually also mention counterterrorism. The U.S. was doing two things in Afghanistan. 
They were killing terrorists and they were trying to persuade the population to support a government. Um, and those two things don't really go together very well. And so there was a lot of problem in US policy as well. Um, so so I, I, I do think contractors are not at all the main story here. No, I can agree. Uh, when you mention scrutiny and accountability uh, and corruption, is a difficult task for the state when you are at peace, figure it out during a war. Having said that, uh, accountability uh, is extremely important uh, and uh, we are looking at private military firm uh, in the area where we work and study, that is the Middle East, uh, but also if we move uh, to other area like Sahel, Mozambique in the African continent, if we are talking about mercenary uh, recently in Haiti or uh, Venezuela, then we see that uh, there is a kind of trend in blurring the line between illicit and illicit activity. Yes. And uh, in such place, uh, uh, there is uh, a perception, let's say, that private contractors uh, now and in the near future are going to operate uh, with greater impunity. Uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, I'm actually kind of on record saying exactly that. <laughs> um, and, um, a monkey cage post um, a little while ago about the um, the trends in the industry and the the coup in Haiti. Um, I do think there was um, there was quite a lot of momentum um, from 2007 uh, to 2012 or so. Um, then IACOCA, you know, sort of came into force. Um, many people hoped that there would be continued, um, again, new codes of conduct for different kinds of services, um, that the US government would um, generate a, a more kind of uniform way of um, requiring these kind of the codes and standards to be part of US policy, um, that these would spread to other governments. Um, and, and really what you saw instead was um, a stall. Um, and in fact, um, Chris Nair, who um, worked at the Department of Defense um, on these issues for a very long time, and I wrote something in 2015 about all the things that were just waiting to be done um, and why wasn't Congress doing them. Um, and of course, there's a lot of other things going on. And then the US you know, has, has had a bit of a political crisis um, for the last five years. And you know, in the midst of that crisis, instead of progress on these issues, you've seen um, Eric Prince, who is um, flouting many of these regulations, meeting uh, in the Oval Office, um, making arguments about what to do in Afghanistan that go against the very core of the Montreux process. Um, at the same time, the Department of Defense basically took apart the office that oversaw um, the uh, contract support, um, uh, especially it's sort of transnational coordination of it. Um, and, and, and so, you know, one of the, the motors really behind, um, um, you know, the heft of this regulation um, died. Uh, and I think that that has been, um, that has provided more avenues um, for, uh, for different kinds of companies, the Wagner Group is only one of them. Um, and I think in Mozambique, you see, you know, a really mix. I, I think that is that's a case where there 
definitely is a lot of gray zone there. You know, is this really a legit company or not? You know, um, there also was quite a lot of advising going on um, in the Mozambican government by, by Prince and others um, that, um, that is much more of that sort of cowboy style, I would say, of the early 2000s. Um, so, so I do think that we have sort of moved in a much more sort of problematic direction overall, um, even as organizations like ICOCA have really done good work. Um, and so it's, it's a matter now of what will happen, you know, um, are people going to sort of mobilize around um, carrying these regulations forward or um, are they going to mobilize around sort of gaining advantage through these much more um, flexible gray area um, organizations. So I think we're really at an inflection point right now as to whether we continue down that path or not. I will say the US government, um, the GAO has just issued um, a good report um, and they are working on more, um, essentially calling um, the government to task for not doing more with respect to these companies. So it's possible that the US government will um, will step up its um, its efforts, um, but um, but part of that will depend on how much this is sort of on the agenda um, of Congress members. And um, unfortunately, I think the pull out of Afghanistan might make it less likely rather than more likely. Uh, thank you. I mean, hearing you know the this trend towards more gray areas. Um, you know, a country like Singapore, based out of, out of, is is you know extremely hesitant towards make to making any moves towards um, you know like greater privatization and sort of you know understandably so. There's a sentiment that that you know the military privatization is either for sort of you know the states in crisis or sort of expansionary powers. And a stable, you know, cosmopolitan, peaceful country like Singapore perhaps uh, should keep its hands completely away from privatization. But is that a luxury that you know, like some of these countries can afford? Can they keep completely themselves out of this, out of this trend, or you know, is, or is this a glowing trend that eventually will touch different parts? And if it is, I mean, is there perhaps even a role that a place like Singapore that has historically been, you know? Um, a center for you know arbitrations of, of global arbitration, international arbitrations of various kinds. Is there a role that such small neutral countries can play perhaps even in the monitoring and regulation of this global industry? Well, that's an interesting question. I actually, um, I have a chapter coming out in a book on um, the future of globalization um, or the future of global governance, I'm sorry, um, that, that makes an argument about the Swiss government in, in very much um, a similar way, um, that, that they're, um, they you know, basically played the role of a policy entrepreneur. And of course, the Swiss have uh, their own kind of history um, and brought their own um, sets of concerns um, to the fore. Um, and so I would imagine Singapore might engage differently, but, but I do think there's a role for basically any player, um, you know, that's that's one of the things that um, has been so interesting to me as I have studied more and more of the different clients that participate in this industry. It's convinced me that, um, you know, sort of governments only function in relation to other actors, social actors, and social actors can play a very large role in encouraging governments to do more of what they ought to do, which is pay attention to sort of common concerns, 
Um, or they can encourage them to pay attention to much narrower um, concerns and, and, and basically take advantage of governments in different ways. And so I think there's a large role for, um, for various commercial civil society actors. But I also think in terms of governments, you know, governments live in a society of other governments and they can call each other to account. And they can also nudge each other in important ways. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I do have a, a database um, looking at military, I mean, uh, media mentions of um, uh, private military and security companies in um, Southeast Asia, Latin America, and Africa. And there's actually quite a lot of private security activity um, in Southeast Asia. Um, much of it focus more on what we might think of as domestic policing kinds of things. But um, these, the, these different missions are, are really merging in important ways. And I think, you know, G4S is a good example of that. Um, and so I, I do think that, um, that, you know, the Singaporean government, um, you know, any government could potentially play a positive role um, in, um, in sort of looking critically at what's going on in its borders, um, but then also in attending to what, um, what others have agreed to already and, and playing a supportive role in that. Um, so, um, so yeah, so there may be actually more privatization already in Singapore um, than, than you're thinking about. Now, unfortunately, the time for our podcast is running out. We have just time for the latest question. Uh, it's sad because I'm sure both Ami and me would love to talk with you about this topic for hours, endless time. Mm -hmm. But now, basically, I'm going to ask you what we call the million dollar question. And is uh, what is the future of warfare and security management in complex environment is going to look like in the coming 30 years? So yeah, I think I think the whole world is becoming a complex environment. <laughs> you know, certainly in the last five years, we've seen a lot of complexity uh, in in the U.S. domestic environment um, as well as in foreign policy. Um, and I think the days of sort of major power war, despite all the discussion of geopolitical rivalries, is is not quick to come back. Um, I think we will see much more in this gray area in cyber attacks, in drone warfare, in targeted killing rather than, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, combat um, between, um, between armed groups. Um, and that, you know, there, the, I think there will be a continued transformation and growth of the gray area and um, a continued need to sort of think about the ways in which those who are more concerned with sort of organizing force around common concerns sort of join together, decide what those common concerns are, um, generate um, norms around them and, and, and try to work together to sort of manage conflict. I think that, um, the, the days of individual governments managing conflict is is probably on the wane, um, and um, and and there's much greater need, I think, for these kind of collaborative arrangements for for thinking about um, how we're going to um, 
how we're going to control force and around what sorts of norms. Um, and as I said, I think we are at an inflection point. I think a lot of work has been done to try to manage some parts of this gray area. Um, you know, and I know that people thinking about cybersecurity norms are looking at um, what the private military and security industry did as a potential model for sort of thinking about um, new normative configurations. Um, but, but you also have the growth of this kind of geopolitical um, set of arguments, which in my view are really a mask for um, using um, this industry for advantage um, or using um, uh, state mechanisms for advantage for, for a small group. Um, and so I think that's, that's the big question is whether you will be able to get, you know, where the balance I guess will fall between those sort of aiming to use force for their individual advantage or small group advantage and those like focused on um, larger, more common concerns. Um, but it's gonna be complicated. I think, um, I think all of us will be busy with research projects as far as I can see. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Professor Ivan, for joining us today. This has been an incredibly thought-provoking conversation. And as you know, as Alex mentioned, we could have gone on for much longer, but you know, we're not going to take more of your time. So again, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to thank also the MEI support staff and the events team for putting this together. Um, and please do keep listening to us. Send us your any questions or comments that you have to us, and we'll be back with you with. Uh, another speaker in our next episode. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you.